In this episode, we dive into some of the biggest problems in our world today and potential solutions to them with Alexandros Marcassini, a very successful now retired businessman who is concerned about the current state of our world and its trajectory. With over 100 years of experience between us and perspectives ranging from the 1930s to the present day, I thought this episode was needed to help us build better societies, and I had a blast recording it. We cover how we seem to be living in different realities and disagreeing on facts, how polarization is a key factor contributing to this problem, comparing different value systems based on human nature and religion, exploring how to find a fair and holistic version of objective truth, freedom of speech, maximalism versus the legal definition, having a fair consensus mechanism or democratic process to settle decisions and come to optimal solutions, Tim Urban's book, What's Our Problem, and how it tells us to talk uh, or how to talk about politics, better education with a focus on fundamental practical skills like literacy, numeracy, creativity, critical thinking, emotional intelligence, how to have hard conversations, psychology, mental self-care, philosophy, travel, and civics, poor environmentalism and what to do about our changing climate, and lastly, humanity's ex existential threats, what we're really facing, how to create more aligned incentives here on Earth, and multiplanetary solutions like those proposed by Elon Musk and SpaceX. Since we're just starting out and could really use your support, if you like this episode, please whisper, push me into that like button's ear and then smash it. Share this episode, comment, sign up for our newsletter and retweet our episodes to at Balajis, that's B-A-L-A-J-I-S on Twitter so we can get his attention and get him on the podcast. I promise we'll make it all worth it for you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Network State Podcast. Today we are joined by a very special guest, Alexandros Marcassini. He has a, been a businessman for most of his life, uh, and we have had some fascinating conversations about how to better societies as well as the problems in them. Um, and mainly, we're just both concerned about the state of the world. And so we're hoping to glean some insights from this conversation to at least explore what are those problems, why are they happening, and how can we solve them? So uh, the first major problem that we have, Alexandros, is something that we've talked about uh, during lunch yesterday, um, is that we seem to be living in different realities. We're disagreeing on fundamental truths or facts. Um, why is this happening, in, in your opinion? Well, that's a very good question, and uh, I'm not sure that I have the answer to this or any other of the questions you're going to get posed to me today, but it's obviously that, first of all, the world is very, very, is polarized and becoming more so. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, uh, there was a, a certain glues that held the world together, for example, one of the obvious ones is religion. And the vast majority of the Western world or what we think of as the Western world were Christians. And so therefore they automatically had a set of values called the Ten Commandments, which everybody worked from. Uh, then you had 
uh, people who are not of the Christian religion, but were also in, were a Jewish, and that's part of the similar tradition. So there was a sort of similarity that existed, except on the periphery. If you went to uh, the Ottoman Empire and things of this sort, and there were Muslims as well, but mainly in Western Europe, you would have to say it was the Judo-Christian uh, tradition. Well, that's all splintered and has blown up, although, you know, there are Jewish people and religious people and religious Christians. They're, they're fewer and fewer, and certainly many of the young people are not religious at all. And therefore, you have, dare I say it, new religions. I would say wokedom is a kind of a religion. Climate change is a kind of a religion. And people who believe in these things feel very strongly about them. And so therefore, immediately when talking to somebody who is opposed to them, there is, as there is in any religious discussion, a, a difference of reality that immediately comes into play. And uh, sort of it's sort of the, the way people used to think of arguing about religion now we argue about everything as if it's religion and i think that's i think that's one of the factors there are others but i think that is certainly one of them we do we no longer have common traditions and yesterday there is a large group of people who believe in what is termed a liberal a democratic values but uh, again, this is not everyone. There are people who believe in some of the democratic liberal values, some who believe in others. It's, it's, it's very difficult. And I think this is one of the major problems that we're facing. And interestingly enough, I think that technology, instead of the irony is that technology that you would think would, would make all this go away because you can immediately show a video or a transcript of somebody saying something. And the interesting thing is that it doesn't, doesn't actually work like that. And we've already seen examples where uh, I can present two videos of the same act, uh, of the same factual happening, and the videos can portray it in very a different lights. I mean, camera angles can be very distorted. So the religion that you would, the the technology that you think would would actually make this less, has, in my opinion, made it more. Yeah. So a lot of interesting points there. We're going to have to double click on a few. So the first is this this polarization, um, and it's not just. Uh, religious, but also political. Um, and the other side is we need to dive into what are these different value systems that we have, um, whether they're Judeo-Christian values or uh, completely different. Um, where do they come from? Where do they stem from? And ultimately, I think that comes down to human nature. And there seems to be also very different perceptions about what humans are capable of. This is something we, we briefly touched on yesterday. Um, but 
let's talk about that for a second. Um, why do we have such different perceptions of human nature and what we're capable of? Because basically humans are made up of both good and evil. And you can argue and say that good and evil are opposite sides of the same coin. So the same person who is, can be noble and generous and kind can be ignoble, can be mean, can be cruel. And this is the essential dilemma of humanity, which religions attempted to deal with and attempted to uh, somehow ameliorate. And because man has turned away from religion generally, I think that this, that this is one of actually the major problems. And I think that what's interesting today is in the beginning, science really made humanity, Western humanity turn away from, from religion. But now I've seen more and more instances that science in the form of the Big Bang, in the form of, for example, uh, Darwin's uh, evolution was a, I would say, a tremendous influence for atheism. Uh, it now turns out that the, the latest view of science is that evolution certainly took place and certainly was a very important factor, but it didn't take place in everything. In other, thing, in other words, all of, all of humanity and animals and so forth is not simply evolution. There's, there are other aspects to it, aspects to it that give rise to the thought that there's possibly a some kind of intelligent design or some or some force that goes beyond what science at this point can explain. And so therefore it's interesting, ironically, there is you're seeing, I, I think, could be wrong here. I think you're seeing that more scientists who are a little bit more religious than what used to be. So I would say that the lack of the lack of religion has been a very destabilizing factor. Yeah, it's um, you know, so I'm just thinking there are multiple different value systems, major value systems that have arisen, uh, some much more recent than others. But if we're starting with um, the uh, polytheism of you know the early humans and then moving into these singular God uh, type religions where that dictated moral values and what was right, what was wrong, what was good, what was evil, and how you should conduct yourself in a society, uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Confucianism, so on and so forth. Um, and then more recently, we have these emergences of sociopolitical values with liberalism, capitalism, communism, socialism. And 
when the basis for what was absolutely true uh, was taken away, as, as you said, uh, towards the proponent of atheism or the, the popularization of atheism through things like Darwin's theory of evolution, we needed to reevaluate what was true and how we would come to that consensus. And so that brings us to our first problem, uh, which is, you know, how do we solve the, the problem of having a consensus mechanism of some sort that we can all come to agree on some objective form of truth? How important is having just one form of objective truth? Is it possible to have multiple that can coexist in a way? Um, and how would we go about that? Quantum truth. <laughs> so it's both true and not true at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think it's funny because that actually makes a lot of sense, right? Um, all of these issues are going to be nuanced, but ultimately we're going to, there's going to be some argument for science being the objective form of truth or the scientific method being used to replace religion where religion was an answer, a clear answer to all the things we did not know. Um, science was, there are so many things we don't know, but here are some of the things we can prove scientifically through that scientific method. But is that objective truth? Yes or, or no? And what would it look like in its ideal form? I would argue that science doesn't, is, is in fact a force of untruth because there are no truths in science much as we like to say so. I think that one of the really silliest phrases bandied about is settled science. There is no such thing as settled science. Science is constantly, is constantly changing as, as our knowledge increases and as our understanding increases. So what is scientifically true today is not necessarily scientifically true tomorrow. And I think that uh, this is again a, a force of making a simple consensus truth more difficult. So if we, if we can't come to some consensus about truth, it kind of makes everything else much more difficult. Um, I, would, I would say impossible. Impossible. That is the essential. I, I would say that that is as close as I know to what the essential problem facing the world today is that we don't, we no longer have a common truth. Right. So if we can't find that, um, how can we go about finding that? And that's what brings us to the issues that we're running into with freedom of speech, first and foremost. Um, and then we can dive into how to have productive conversations. But what's going wrong with freedom of speech today? Well, uh, what's going wrong with freedom of speech is that many people are upset or frightened about things that they hear. 
In other words, we have hate speech, we have all kinds of uh, different forms of speech. So suddenly speech, instead of being a, a liberating and educating factor as becoming another basically destabilizing factor. Before so, we go further, I better introduce my boss. Yeah. Please, what, what please do, yeah. When you're in a sitting next to each other, you must be nuts. <laughs> there, you see? Now, there is a form of speech. <laughs> Dis disturbing speech, but there we are. So we are now in, in a state where we thought that we were in a state of complete harmony and agreement and order, we have now been told that we are in a state of disorder. And so it goes. Right. So um, what's your take on freedom of speech? Should we, are you a freedom of speech maximalist? Should everybody be allowed to say what they want or where do you fall on that spectrum? I fall on that subject as where I try to fall on every a subject. Yes, but yes, I am for freedom of speech, but there are exceptions, always exceptions to the rule in certain circumstances. And those are complicated and difficult. But I think you do need freedom of speech because if you don't have the freedom of speech, you effectively have totalitarianism and slavery. And I don't think those are particularly good things. So if we, <laughs> that, that opens up a whole other can of worms. That, that opens up a whole other. So, discussion. yeah, if we, if we accept that freedom of speech, let's say that it falls within the liberal definition of, um, or liberalism definition that you should be allowed to say whatever you want to say as long as it doesn't cause others physical harm um, as opposed to mental harm. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that's going to turn a lot of heads and some people will say that, you know, the mental harm could be more significant, but then there's, you know, a very slippery slope. So just for the purposes of moving forward, let's say that that's something we can agree with. If we had that system, um, how would we then have these fair consensus mechanisms or democratic processes to settle decision-making? Well, the system that we've always used is to have courts. That's why we have legal systems. But let me say this, because there is no system, in my opinion, no system can exist without basically men of good intentions, unless you have humans, unless we are all trying to make it work out, there is no rule that can sort of adjudicate everything between us in spite of us. We, we need, to, we need to, to have some kind of a, a inclination of cooperation of some kind. Failing which, and this again, we, we go back to the the politics today are, are so insidious, so poisonous, so angry, so full of hate and bitterness that uh, 
it's really hard to it's really hard to bring a group of people of different views, but all of whom have a innate desire to get along. And if you don't have that, then you cannot create a system that, that's going to do that for you. Right. And I don't think that it's realistic for us, given human nature, to create a world in which everybody is in agreement on most important things. I think more likely what's going to happen is if we succeed, best case scenario would be cohorts of governance, either micro, uh, on a micro scale, meaning people can, for the most part, govern themselves on very small scales and rely on bigger systems to take care of bigger problems, but essentially a governance that meets the needs of each level um, and very diverse sets of governance so that any person um, can choose which governance they want. And it doesn't necessarily have to be for all time. So we'll have this kind of opt-in, opt-out system for governance that people can choose to be a citizen of XYZ organization or country um, as their needs or their wants change throughout life. Um, but given that it's going to be absolutely necessary for us to come to conclusions effectively about how things should be done. And so currently there's a liberal Western world of sorts that promotes um, freedom and some forms of equality where people should be allowed to do whatever they want to do as long as it doesn't physically harm others. But at the same time, this kind of ideology is causing a lot of different populist movements, <laughs> which is counter to what it was built for, um, where people want to humiliate the other side or destroy the other side more so than they want to come to a consensus, um, which is what that liberal value system is all about. So that with cancel culture, with um, voting to enforce these kinds of um, lack of tolerance, I guess I would put it as, um, is, is, is taking us in the wrong direction. So we need some form of, of liberalism or some form of freedom of speech to be able to express these values. And then how do we have intelligent conversations about these things to come to good conclusions? Well, a good way to start is for all of us to be as educated and well-read and well-informed as we can be. But to go back to your to what you were saying, I couldn't agree more with all you've said. But I think that you therefore need to have smaller governments and smaller communities. That's, it's much easier for 100 people 
get along than a, a billion people to right. uh, to get along. On the other hand, as we've seen throughout history, what happens is small states tend to want to become big states, and there you have territorial expansion, you have war, you have all these other things. So again, there is a kind of balance that you're always trying to sort of achieve. And that is perhaps the most difficult of all. But clearly, it's much easier to create a set of values for a smaller group, if you will, a more homogeneous group of people than it is for a larger uh, group with very different cultures involved, obviously. And that's why you can argue and say that the most successful empires were those that didn't attempt to, to uniformly uh, control the citizens, that allowed the citizens their own communities, their own culture, but simply demanded certain basic things from each of them, mostly money or uh, uh, a, 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 a form of, of payment of, of some sort. Uh, and it may be that that is a, perhaps on some, on some basis, it's a more, it's a more rational form of a government than to attempt to create specific complex policies for hundreds of millions of people from one central capital. Yeah, I, I, think, I couldn't. I'm sorry, yes. No, go ahead. No, I, I, I think America probably, well, it clearly worked better uh, in, in a way before it became as centralized as it did. Now, I understand the need for centralization and the issue of slavery and the, and the and the importance of a, of 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 eliminating slavery was all important and one understands that but prior to the civil war you can argue and say that the states more or less were in a in a more uh, agreeable relationship than than what's happened now yeah it's it's it seems to getting to be getting closer and closer to that, and we will dive into the potential for a U.S. civil war and its implications later on. Um, but to 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 conclude on the how to have these intelligent conversations, um, I'd like to uh, give credit to Tim Urban for writing the book uh, "What's Our Problem," um, and to just quickly summarize, he. Basically, he writes it as a call to action for humanity to work towards solving the problems that have plagued us throughout history. Um, and he identifies short-termism and a lack of shared goals, which we talked about a little bit, as two factors that prevent us from making progress. Uh, he then emphasizes the importance of working to, together towards a common goal, because if we all have these differences, it's very difficult to find alignment. Um, and then he goes on to argue that these problems are not unique to modern times, but have existed throughout human history. Uh, humans have always been faced with challenges such as disease and famine and war, and have made progress in, in overcoming them. 
However, these new problems keep emerging and humans must continue to work towards solving them. One of the ways that he talks about that is uh, this idea of high rung versus low rung politics. So in a nutshell, if we're looking at a sort of political ladder, the lower rungs are when people are uh, reacting emotionally and um, speaking more from analogy or personal experience um, and emotional pain or victimhood than from uh, rational logic or what would suit the most people. And this is also something that Yuval Noah Harari talks about in his book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, um, where we're living in this kind of post-truth era where we have an increase, there's an increasing tendency of people to believe in stories that are emotionally compelling rather than factually accurate. Uh, and he argues that that trend is driven by the rise of social media and the erosion of traditional media sources, um, and then how that trend is impacting both our politics and society. So if we have these low-rung type conversations, it's obviously going to get much, much worse, right? Because that just polarizes people more, it entrenches them more, it causes more conflict. On the other side of that is these high-rung politics where we create cultures of freedom of speech that are almost absolutist, right? So again, not to harm other people physically, um, but where ideas are openly challenged from all sides, uh, openly defended from all sides. Um, and that means, you know, putting in the effort to get those diversity of opinions, especially for the people in which the systemic issues make it very difficult for their opinions to be heard. Um, but at least when they're there, it's a conversation about um, how do we get to the best solution um, and not caring so much about attacking other people's uh, ideas because they're just ideas and nobody's associating their identity with their ideas. And therefore, getting attacked doesn't feel triggering. It's just triggering or it's just attacking the idea itself. So if we remove ourselves and our sense of identities from these ideas and then throw them in the ring uh, for an open forum where everyone can uh, piece them apart or build them up, um, I think that would be much more conducive towards coming to the best answer. And this is something that you know, venture capitalists do all the time or lots of um, investment bankers in the finance industry. It's very common because a mistake for a poor idea is very expensive. Uh, and you don't want to be the person who didn't stress test their thinking and caused the firm, you know, millions of dollars or whatever it is. So, yeah, how, how, what, what do you think of that? And um, if there's any way to improve it or, or how would you attack it to move forward for having these kinds of conversations? It's very interesting what you've said, which, again, I, 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 I generally agree with completely. Uh, because although you didn't mention it, what you say raises, I think, a very interesting point, which is something that some people today want to move away from, which is competition. Competition is the bane of efficiency. Hmm. Competition is endemic to life, after all, what is life but competition for resources among species? And 
any way that you can sort of have competition without necessarily killing each other or making it fatal and mortal can be very, very helpful. One reason that government is so inefficient is that there is no competition in a government. Most jobs are lifetime jobs. People are never fired. Uh, the uh, eventually uh, 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 the point of every bureaucracy is not to accomplish the original intention of the bureaucracy, but simply to expand it, make it larger and more uh, powerful. So therefore, somehow you need to keep a sense of competition in every human endeavor in some fashion. And that is, in, in a way, also a, a form of discourse, if you will. Instead of necessarily arguing about something, let's all do what we think is best and right, and let's see at the end of the day who's done better, because it'll be obvious. It, it won't even need a discussion. We'll know. So I completely agree that uh, I think competition is, a, is actually a really great solution for the most part but to steel man the other side for a second um what do we say for the people who's for whom the system is stacked against them in the data right not just by opinion and also where the means of equal opportunity don't exist well i think we need to have a talk about equality Equality is a very fine term and a wonderful concept in a way. But the basic problem of equality is that it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in nature in any form, way, or shape. In fact, it's connected to competition. Life is a competition and there is no equality. Some people get ahead and some people don't. Now that is not meant to be a sort of horrible, amoral, cruel statement. That's just a fact. Right. Now, because we are humans and because we have sentiment as we should and we should develop kindness and so forth, we're not going to let and cannot let people fall by the wayside. But we cannot to form our systems to try to create false equality that does not exist. Yeah. So, so therefore, we need to, I mean, it's charity is a word that a lot of people don't like, but it is a very important word. And 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 therefore. And this is where religion, this is where normal civilized values come into play, human kindness and, and general humanity. So we are not going to allow people to starve or die or, or lead horrible lives. But, but we cannot at the same time try to sort of achieve some kind of synthetic and made believe equality that doesn't really exist. Some of us 
are smarter, some of us are stronger, some of us are better looking. These are these are the facts, the facts of nature. And we have somehow have to work around them and do our best and work with them and 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 preserve preserve humanity and people as best as we can. But we're not going to accomplish that with this false religion of equality. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think it's not mutually exclusive with holding leaders or change makers or people in power accountable for making systems that maximize equal opportunity, right? So it's not that the differences, the innate differences in people will change uh, and not necessarily even innate, right? But just um, the skills of people as well, the things that you actually can change. Um, like you said, some people are just smarter than others, et cetera. Um, but if they're operating in a system in which all other things made equal, so the things that we cannot change made equal, if possible, and it's obviously an idealistic um, scenario, but it's striving closer to that than where we currently are. Um, that's still possible with a world in which we can accept reality, we can accept the innate differences in people, uh, we can accept the systemic issues that exist to um, push certain players down while pushing other players up um, and try to uh, level the playing field as much as possible. Um, now, again, that is only for the people for which that matters, right? There will be tons of people who don't care about that. Um, and then I think it's up to the market to decide, uh, and by market, I mean people to decide, do they want to support those systems or those organizations, or do they want to vote with their feet and move, right, to another thing or form another thing or so on and so forth. But um, that kind of I think gives us at least some form of truth, which is, that's the bright side. We can agree that there are innate differences, that there are, um, that there is an, une an uneven playing field. And so that is an important reality to accept if you're going to operate in a practical way and you're trying to maximize your, your success in life, whether that's just your happiness or financial or, or otherwise. Um, one really interesting thing that uh, I wanted to bring up in terms of having these kinds of conversations is the idea of citizens' assemblies, which is, I think, an idea popularized by the UN in which they bring together several experts. And my caveat to that is these experts also need to come from diverse um, backgrounds. Uh, otherwise, it's quite biased. Um, but diverse experts and a diverse representation of a citizenry to discuss a particular issue right in that country or in that neighborhood or in that home let's say right um, and so if you have these diverse sets of experts and you have this diverse representation of the population that is um, going to have a much better chance of coming to a conclusion that would work more holistically than one in which that is not the case. And 
to go back to what we were saying before, I actually think we don't want to build for average. Um, I think there was a, a, a researcher named Todd Rose, um, I think was his name, where he had a TED talk called uh, The Myth of Average. He was talking about the education system, which we'll dive into more later as well, where we are constantly trying to build for the average. And he actually used the example of the Air Force, I believe, where they were building um, the seats in fighter jets to fit the average person. And it didn't work for anybody because there was no such thing. And so they had spent all this time and money building these, these seats and nobody could use them. So it really comes down to, you know, how do we bring this personalized government as much as possible or personalized um, needs getting met? Um, and so even though these citizens assemblies could be a good idea for macro government, I think the focus should be much more uh, on the micro. Um, and to bring up those topics, another piece in Yuval's uh, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century was about science fiction and how science fiction has a role in shaping our beliefs about the future, whether that is um, positive or negative, hopes or fears, and how that has also inspired technological innovation and influenced our views on artificial intelligence, which I think will one of the more disruptive uh, innovations of humanity. And so the reason I bring that up is we can use the inspiration from science fiction or, and that's really just saying, what do people think about the future? Um, to determine what are the kinds of things that we should be talking about in these citizens' assemblies in the first place. I think that what you're saying about science fiction is absolutely true and correct. And I think science fiction has been a huge force of inspiration for, for quite a long time. And I don't think it's, I don't think that it's an accident that uh, it's, more popular than ever today, particularly among younger people. And uh, it's something that hopefully will continue. But I just want to go back a little bit to our previous uh, talking about the systems in general. There is a danger in all of this. And the danger is something called a utopia, something that doesn't exist, but has always lived in the dreams of men. Hmm. And the dangerous thing, it's very dangerous to try to create utopia, in my opinion, because utopia is, by its very nature, un unrealistic. Utopia tries to create perfection. So we cannot take this very, very messy room and make it into perfect order, but we can make it less messy. And that's, I think, what our focus, everyone's focus, should be on. Not to redesign the room, not to go from messy to perfection, because that will never take place, but simply to go from messy to less messy. And I think, so that's a really, really good point um, to illustrate that, uh, well, the famous saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, is also responsible for um, 
how Hitler and Stalin rose to power. So they were selling that utopic vision. Um, and especially when people are in a state in which their needs are not being met, if we're looking at Maslow's hierarchy, right, and just their physiological needs are not being met, they're much more susceptible to being to buying into this utopic vision and going along. And people in power, uh, taking from Robert Greene's book on the laws of human nature, are for a disproportionate amount narcissists or sociopaths, because those are the kinds of people who uh, put themselves to in the in the positions to go after positions of power disproportionately to others. Um, and not only that, but uh, they're generally brilliant manipulators and therefore can rise up much more quickly. And so um, if we use this paintbrush idealistic version of the world to motivate people towards something, it could be great and it could also be very, very bad. Uh, and I think history has proven that it is more likely to be used for evil than for good because these people would want to use that as a, as a guiding light and then bait and switch the entire population to work towards their own personal means. So um, given that, um, there's a couple different things that we need to establish. We can now dive into education um, because that could be one of the ways to protect against that. Um, so we, we need a better education system. We know that it's outdated. We know that it's broken. Um, we know that uh, it's not built at all for the future. Um, memorization and rote learning are obsolete. And we have had many different uh, proposals for what we should be focusing on. So Duolingo, uh, which many listeners may be familiar with, uh, is the most popular and successful education app ever, um, both by number of users and by profitability. And Duolingo started by teaching what it believed to be the most fundamental skill for the planet, which was literacy and languages. Um, and so literacy is definitely very, very high on that list. And then, uh, Alexander, you and I were just talking about numeracy and math being another very fundamental skill on that list. Um, I don't think that could be easily argued against. However, the other ones, so some of the ones that Yuval Noah Harari argues for are emphasizing creativity, critical thinking, emotional intelligence. Um, I would argue for teaching the skill on how to have hard conversations, um, because if we don't know how to do that, we're not going to be able to come to any good consensus. Um, I would add psychology for being able to have a solid uh, mental self-care, as we've seen that our mental health crisis is only getting worse and worse, especially for youth. Um, and philosophy, just because that would be an antidote to this anxiety-inducing question that most Gen Zers and some millennials suffer with, which is, what do I do with my life? And not having an answer to that, and that causing all of this uh, anxiety and depression. So what do you think about the current education system? What do you think we should include? Um, and what would lead to a better society? I'm glad you asked me that because I have a very strong view mm. about a subject that rarely comes up anymore. 
which is history. I think that history should be taught, but it should be taught not from the point of view of, of politics and biases, but taught in the form of classical history, because history is what is what we are now. Unfortunately, in today's world, with a click of a button, you can get historical information on anything you want instantly. So it makes it easy to say, well, what? why do I need to, I need to study history? And why do I need to know the Battle of Hastings or the year in which it was fought? What the, if I have a question on it, I can simply look it up, but that's not the way it works. Because simply the studying of history gives you perspective, perspective about humanity, perspective about the species, which are all important. I would also add something which is never a subject in education, in most educational systems, but which should be, which in my opinion is travel. I think travel is one of the most important forms of education that anyone can have or have. It's sad that we no longer have the Peace Corps, which I didn't think much of the way it was formed, but which did have the effect of taking young Americans and putting them in other places in the world and expanding their horizons overnight. This is something that should be done in some way and systematized in education. Young people should go and spend a certain amount of time in foreign countries, trying to learn foreign languages, looking at the culture of people and so forth. These are enormously expanding human subjects. I couldn't agree more with that. I think that's a great point. I've never heard that in all, all my years in education, speaking to so many different educational leaders, but I think that is actually a fundamental skill as well. And obviously it's a very privileged skill but if this is something baked into an education system, um, you don't need to travel across the world to broaden your horizons, right? There are many local places in which you can do that. Um, in fact, just the fact that there are places in almost every country in which um, you can see the massive differences in socioeconomic status, um, just going to that area of wherever you live or near where you live, um, will show you to what point there are disparities in, in our society. Um, so I, yeah, that is, a, that is an amazing point. Um, to go for the, the history point, this is actually something we just talked about in our previous episode. Um, and uh, for context, um, there are ways in which we can now uh, use the Bitcoin blockchain to log historical events. And by that, we mean logging uh, photographs or potentially eventually videos, depending on the size of the videos or messages or documents. Um, and so one of the examples that I can use to illustrate was the, the incident in the Catton Forest uh, during World War II, where the uh, Russians massacred an insane amount of Polish officers in the Catton Forest uh, and completely denied that atrocity of war for many, many years. And eventually, 40 years later, they brought it up, um, I think, during a UN conference. 
and the Russians and the Poles were able to make some headway because the Russians, I think under Gorbachev, had actually um, owned up to that mistake. And that was a good example of how if we as countries or leaders or organizations take ownership of our mistakes and our problems, that they actually have a higher likelihood of getting solved rather than just living in denial about them and that just entrenching people more, causing more hate, more resentment, uh, because there's no possibility for uh, repair or consensus. And so uh, we need that objective form of truth. And this is why the Bitcoin blockchain is just one way of going about that. It doesn't really matter as long as there is a form of truth where there is a recorded history that everybody can agree on because there are facts that are immutable um, and verifiable by everybody. Um, so that even in countries where they are living in oppression or uh, some form of occupation or censorship, if even one citizen is able to get information out there and that information is able to get logged in this immutable way, at least there is a copy of that out there for everybody to see. Um, and then it's up to everybody to decide, you know, whether the validity of that log was correct or not, but at least it's there uh, compared to it being denied. Um, okay, so to, to dive a little bit deeper into that, um, we want to educate everybody. We want everybody to be well-informed about these problems. Uh, we want everybody to have these broader horizons and a more open mind and some form of humility to be able to have these uh, difficult conversations and come to some form of consensus. One of the things we talked about yesterday uh, was Adam Grant's work on how organizations can change and what he's seen in that. So to break it down in, in three quick steps, it was to uh, force some form of emotional shock in the decision makers that really illustrated what the problem was. Uh, because as humans, the logic doesn't necessarily motivate us to act, but the emotions do. And so it's kind of this constant balance between staying rational and logical to come to better decisions, but also emotional enough to act. Um, and so that's the first step. Uh, the example he used was uh, a construction company that had uh, been wasting a ton of money on different sized gloves. And one of the executives had noticed this. And so he collected all of the gloves that they had bought that were wasted uh, and had thrown them all on the board of uh, executives table so that they could see, you know, look at this, this is all the money that we've wasted this quarter or whatever it was. And that produced the emotional shock necessary to motivate people to, to do something about it. The second step was to appeal to people's existing values and identity. So uh, the example used was there was a massive littering problem in Texas and uh, the government put together a advertisement from a bunch of Texan celebrities that people respected um, explaining how much they love Texas and that you know because they love Texas, they want to treat it right and therefore they would never throw trash on Texas. And so they appealed to people's existing values as Texans. If you like this country or you like this state, or you should treat it with respect. And if you should treat it with respect, you should not litter on it. And the last one is uh, having a very small ask. So lowering 
the barrier to entry for people to ask uh, to act so that it's not so difficult to get people to do something about it and get uh, overwhelmed by how big the problem is, but instead have a very clear and small action that can be done now to get the ball rolling and eventually that can be accelerated. Um, so to bring all of that in with the work of uh, Dr. Ross Green, who created a, what's called the CPS model or the Collaborative and Proactive Solutions model, which is originally used um, for families coping with kids with ADHD uh, and coming to a consensus about how to create solutions collaboratively and proactively where the child feels ownership in the problem and feels that they have a say in how to solve the problem as opposed to parents dictating uh, what exactly needs to happen. Uh, this metaphor applies to governments and its citizenry, right? If the government is acting as the parent and they're saying, this is what needs to happen and it's this way or the highway, uh, the citizenry acts like the child in this metaphor and doesn't uh, like that. But if they're a collaborative and or, or collaboratively and proactively coming up with solutions to these problems and voicing those problems together, then there should be a higher likelihood for not only this sense of ownership, which gets people more motivated and bought into solving the problem because they see how it affects them, uh, but also coming up with solutions that would appeal to more people than just themselves. Um, and lastly, proactively, so that it's not always reactive, um, which is what we see more and more here uh, being uh, systems being built in response to a massive failure in the system like 9-11 causing more intense TSA. So all of that to say, we have a bunch of different things that we need to learn. Uh, we have some methods for solving these problems and some models to do that. Uh, we understand how it affects people psychologically and how to motivate them more effectively. Is there anything else we can do or any other thoughts or comments on how we should uh, have these intelligent conversations and come to conclusions that we can actually act on? Well, I, again, I couldn't agree more with all you've said, but you've given me, you've reminded me that I left out one very important subject when we were speaking about education. Mm. And that is a subject that should be taught to everyone again, is something called civics. There used to be a class mm. in it in my era in prehistoric times. <laughs> so if we want to have a reasonably good system of government, we need to get, as, you, as you're pointing out, we need to get people at all ages, at all levels, active in some form of a government. And in order to achieve that, we first need to start teaching kids what government is all about. You know the famous dictum that I think it was Winston Churchill said that uh, the, the most eloquent argument against, against democracy is having a conversation with an average a voter. I mean, people's complete lack of, of knowledge of their government is something that is astonishing. I completely agree. I, I don't even think that was an option uh, in my schooling. And that is crazy to think about. Um, there was some Thomas Jefferson quote specifically about 
why the citizenry needed to be well-educated about governance in order for the government to function well. And yeah, it seems like that was lost in history somewhere. Um, so we should definitely be reinstating that. Okay. So having gone through education, let's layer on some more big problems here. Uh, we're currently undergoing a changing world order between uh, China and the US. Um, and then there are some more coalitions in BRICS nations, NATO, uh, Russia as potentially its own isolationist player, Saudi Arabia, et cetera. Um, what do you think of the changing world order? Why is this happening? Um, and then we can dive into what we think we can do about that. Well, we've been under the American world order since the wars. And obviously, for all kinds of reasons, and it's a highly complex a subject, the American empire, a Pax Americana, as it was called, is come undone a bit. Now, whether this is going to continue on or it's going to level off here, these are again long, long discussions. But we are, we are appear to be going into a multipolar world, which is a much more complicated world. Uh, I mean, in a way, we've had a wonderful historical period, much like the time of ancient Rome when uh, the Roman Empire was at its highest and the, the world within its boundaries knew relative peace and relative prosperity. And we've had the same thing during Pax Americana. And this is, and this is one of the major, major questions that we are now we are now facing. And if it's the end of Pax Americana, then we all need to try to figure out what would be the best form of global order without Pax Americana. And that is, again, a highly complex subject. But it's it's a real change. I, I, I don't think I don't think many people realize that this is one of these really important historical periods that's taking place before our very eyes. Well, one of the people who does, and uh, I think uh, I agree to a certain extent, is Ray Dalio, who has spent, I think, billions of dollars on uh, researching the all the macroeconomic and uh, political factors that would potentially lead to a US civil war. So we've seen events in uh, January 6th of uh, the risk for revolution. And uh, yesterday we were talking about how the different um, ways that massive systems change tend to be through revolution. Uh, why, why, do, why, do, why do we have to get to that point? Um, and are there alternatives? I certainly would like to think there are alternatives. And why do you get to that point? Because in order to reform the system, you have to get the people who are in charge to agree. And the people in charge don't usually want to agree because the reforms 
are almost invariably taking great amounts of power away from them. And people who, who are in power don't want to give up their power under any circumstances. So these are the sort of obvious problems involved. And reform is very difficult to do uh, in a sort of normal course of events and usually require a exogenous instance or happening before they can get underway, before the need of the reform becomes so great, so, so obvious that the people who are in charge have no alternative but to step aside. So, you know, one of the things that um, should cause an emotional shock in these people in power uh, is the likelihood of revolution, right? But we're, we're seeing one of the most uh, well-informed minds very publicly sharing all of this information and the likelihood being at 40% and potentially higher, right? It was at 30% not that long ago. So it's going up um, and potentially it's gone down. I haven't seen recently, but uh, regardless, that is almost a coin toss of revolution, which is not very good odds. So given that, um, the emotional shock piece that Adam Grant advocates for doesn't seem to be working here. And what I'd like to explore is, you know, if there is an alternative uh, that doesn't necessitate revolution, what would that look like? And we talked about coercion. What are your thoughts? Well, um, coercion is the, is the issue, whether it's, whether it's from a revolution or whether it's from a uh, factional change of some kind. Uh, I mean, ob obviously, you would, the best form of reform is reform from the inside. But as we said, usually this doesn't happen. It requires exogenous events of some sort. And of course, there, when again, when one says revolution, that's a very broad term that covers everything from uh, uh, the, the withdrawal of the Soviets uh, from, from Czechoslovakia to the French Revolution where thousands and tens of thousands of people were executed. So you have everything in between. There are all kinds of degrees and forms. But obviously the violence is unacceptable and something you want to you want to avoid, but it seems to be very frequently endemic. So what's interesting is if we were to give every single person in power the choice between being coerced into some form of wealth redistribution or something like that, um, or changing a system that they're responsible for, um, or anything of the like that would inevitably remove some of their power. And as we talked about, nobody wants to do that, but also uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, and the alternative being a 
bloody, violent revolution, I feel like most people would choose the former, but I'm not so sure. And I think you have mentioned that the latter would be also very likely. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly in no position to say what is likely. With regard to wealth uh, redistribution, that is basically what most governments do at a certain level. That's the basic level of what taxation is about. That, of course, and defense. Uh, I think I think that wealth re redistribution as a principle is not a good one. Uh, I think reform of a government and a a a reorganization of society is a much much more constructive way to go about it. Uh, just coercional wealth redistribution, in my opinion, would be a disastrous mistake. Yeah, I agree, and and you know I don't even think I mean to 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 steel man the other side here for a second the likelihood that a uh, change in the system where forced or coerced wealth redistribution of some sort or you know taking away of power of some sort on an individual level um, would just cause a game theoretical rise of another country where that's not the case. And so every country is in a prisoner's dilemma to uh, determine you know which values are they really going to st stand for and back if it is the individual rights for um, rights uh, liberty pursuit of happiness um, then we need to stand by that and if that means that baked into the system is the necessary and eventual revolution whatever form that takes, that could still be a viable option in comparison to letting that go. With the very important caveat that there are other countries out there and you don't have to be in any given system. So that's not always the case, but if there were that caveat, um, that would be a necessary uh, piece. So if you have the option to choose between which system you wanna be a part of, but um, I, I would I'll... much prefer to see competing systems. Right, exactly. And that's why I, I personally am very much opposed to world government, even if it was achievable, because I think it's very important to have competing systems. We go back to what we were speaking about as a form of, of calm petition. But also I would like to say that I'm very much opposed to coercion of any form or sort. I'm very much in favor of defense, if necessary, but I'm very much opposed to coercion. I think uh, this is something that should be absolutely banned at all times by any entity at all. As long as you're not harming somebody, you should be left alone. I, and I'm against even, even the most sort of soft forms of coercion I, i'm a i'm i'm a carrot man i'm not a stick man 
Yeah, it's definitely a slippery slope as well, right? If if you allow any form of coercion, soft or not, it eventually is going to exactly get worse and worse. Okay, so what does this say about the about human nature um, and the desire for power? And before answering that, I want to give you a quick anecdote that I found shockingly interesting, which is one of the most popular YouTubers, if not the most popular YouTuber now, is named Mr. Beast, and he has many, many, many followers on Twitter. And he put out a poll uh, with the question, if you could gain, I think it was only $10,000, uh, but you knew that somebody had to die, you didn't know them, would you take it, yes or no? And most people, it was higher than 50%, answered yes. So... What does that I say think the, about us? I think the dictum of uh, not knowing who it is is, is is all important. I mean, that's where you get this. What was that marvelous phrase of Hannah Arendt in connection with Eichmann? I don't know. You remember there was a, I, there was a famous Eichmann trial. I, Eichmann was a somebody high up in the. Nazis who was in charge of the concentration camps. And uh, the Mossad, uh, they found him hiding in Argentina. And they kidnapped him and brought him to Israel. And they had a famous world trial. And there was the, the vivid picture of Eichmann in a glass booth uh, as he was listening to these various people testifying against him. And and the marvelous uh, Israeli writer Hannah Arendt wrote some wonderful articles about the trial as it was taking place. And she used a phrase that became famous, justifiably so, and it was the banal face of evil. And you could see that this man was really a bureaucrat gone mad, but uh, it's not meant to excuse him, but what he was doing was so monstrous, and yet the monstrosity of, of what he was doing completely escaped him he, because he didn't, he'd lost touch with the fact that these were people, these were not squirrels or pigeons, these were people. And 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 so you and so you realize that obviously. Uh, to kill somebody from a distance is much, much easier than to kill them from two feet away. And that's one of the, one of the aspects of modern technological warfare that, that's taken place, where people were being uh, liquidated by drones, manipulated by somebody in Des Moines, Iowa, was killing somebody in Pakistan. Uh, these are, this is completely different to the old forms of warfare where, which were like a, a football scrum where you were facing your, your opponent. You, you could see the, the, the effect of violence. You could feel it, you could smell it, you could see it. And so this is part of the Part of the danger of, well, not danger, the, the implacable effect of technology in all of this, that 
people kill without being used. So obviously you say to somebody, I need this and this, somebody has to die, but you, you don't need to know who that person is. You will never know that person. Seems easy. It shouldn't be. Not at all. And you know, it brings to mind the, the work of Dr. Philip Zimbardo, who I think is famously known for the Stanford prison experiments. Uh, for a quick overview, for those of you who aren't aware, um, he brought together a bunch of college students to act half as prisoners and half, uh, half as prison guards. And within a very short period of time, I think it was like you know, less than a week, um, they had to stop the experiment or maybe it was a couple of weeks because the prison guards had completely um, in a very uh, dehumanizing way uh, treated the prisoners. And the reason was, and part of the research there that's interesting is the same thing that the Nazis did to um, people in concentration camps, which was to remove all of their human attributes as much as possible. So you no longer had a name, you were now a number. You no longer had any human comparisons, you were now a beast. Um, you didn't look them in the eye, you didn't need to touch them. You, didn't, you, you felt that they were a, a pest more so than, than exactly. a human. And so that allowed people to, to do things. And this is not, this is not um, in the Stanford prison experiment, these are not um, Nazi soldiers with some uh, twisted view of what the world should look like. These are just college kids. Um, but given the same attributes of dehumanizing others are absolutely capable of doing the worst. Um, and it's the same with, I think it was Milton uh, experiments with the electric shocks, where if there's, a, there's an, an authority figure, um, well, the, the, the brief summary is that there are some participants in a room and uh, they are strapped to what looks like a kind of electric chair um, or a chair in which you can get powerful electric shocks. Um, and the real participants of the experiment are in another room with the, quote, scientists, um, which are seen as these authority figures. And they are constantly um, telling the participants to increase the electric shocks while they can hear the other human who is an actor, uh, but acting as if they are feeling more and more pain and yelling. And they know, they can see the voltage levels that after a certain point, they've been explained before starting the experiment that after I think it was like 400 volts or whatever it was, that's a lethal dose of electricity. And they're going way past that dose because the scientist is uh, telling them to do so. And so, you know, you add on the de these dehumanizing aspects plus the uh, authorities that you're afraid of or that you've always been taught to listen to unquestionably telling you what to do. And you've got a very powerful concoction for making good people do very bad things. Um, exactly. So, and that is the point is that good people, right. let's forget that bad people can do bad things. We, we all know that. But the point that we need to bear in mind is that unfortunately good people can do very bad things. So, what are the what are the ways to keep these people in power in check? Um, do we need a uh, public accountability system? Do we need 
um, an ultimate international governing body? Do we need the free market of competition? How did these things get kept in check when people break the law? I, I think all of those, but you also need, but you also need, in my opinion, very strict term limits. In fact, I would even have, I would even have that. I don't think that you should have people work in government for their entire career. I think people should be taken from private. In other words, working in the government should be like being in the army. You do it for a certain length of time and you're doing it partially for civic, for patriotic reasons. It's not a career. It shouldn't be a career. Yeah, I I agree that the terms, I mean, also with, you know, the Supreme Court justices being uh, appointed by an active president, but to serve for life just doesn't seem like a, um, a great solution. At the same time, I understand Tim Urban's concern that we are all getting more and more short-termistic, or we are... Uh, in other words, prioritizing short-term incentives over long-term incentives, because if you are in a position of power um, and you're not looking out for future generations because uh, you don't care, um, it's going to be very, very difficult for us to build systems that incentivize long-term thinking. So what are the kinds of rules or guidelines that we should consider or put in place um, to filter who should be allowed um, or elected to make these kinds of changes? Well, I, I, I think, as I said, I think it, it, it's, it, it's important that government service is, is, is not a sinecure. I mean, you go to many countries, my a, a country, Greece, and anyone who passes a civil service exam uh, is immediately, there's a family, a celebration of major proportions because this man is now set for life and his family are set for life. He's going to be working for the government. He's going to have a magnificent a government pension. That is not that is not the way to have a a government for the people, of the people, and for the people take place. I think I think the American Constitution says it so well: a government by the people and for the people. And that is not a professional class, an elite professional class. That's what you have to avoid at all costs. Yeah. So diving into these differences, you know, power can also be money. And we also have a very poor monetary system. Why do we have a poor monetary system? We have a very poor monetary system because uh, of World War I and World War II which is what changed the world and which we're still suffering from because World War I and World War II could never have been prosecuted on any, on any reasonable 
a monetary system of inelastic money. It had to be done on an elastic money system. And then afterwards, the world, the world could never go back to inelastic money after that. I mean, the, 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 uh, uh, the, the basic costs of World War I and World War II bankrupted the entire world except for America. It made America rich. So can we dive into that a little bit more? What do you mean by elastic money? Is this the same as hard money versus soft money? And yeah. uh, can we define uh, those? I, I would use the term elastic and inelastic money rather than hard money and soft money. In, in other words, I, I prefer a, a system where uh, a currency is backed by something, a group of commodities, things of value, if you will, precious metals, but there has to be a backing because there has to be a governor on the expansion of money. In other words, money should only expand when there's a demand for money. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be in the hands of governments or politicians. That is disastrous and that's been shown to be disastrous. Uh, so therefore the, the, the expansion of money should be on the basis of genuine demand for, for money and not on some central planner's idea of what is, 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 is necessary for a particular time. In today's world, you have the central banks are, 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 are basically, contrary to what people think, the central banks don't actually print money. They borrow money into existence, which is further, which is further lent out through the commercial banks. The, most of the money expansion actually takes place by the commercial bank, but it's done under the aegis of the central bank. But all this is done by a kind of monetary planning. And as we've seen so many times, central planning is no way to to run a business, there's no way to run any system. It has disastrous results, but this is what we've evolved into. And this is a huge mistake and the world is going to suffer more from it. So can we dive into that a little bit more? Um, what exactly is the role of central, bank, uh, central banks? What happened when we moved away from the gold standard and why was that a better system? Well, as I say, we moved away, the world moved away from, from the gold standard because it couldn't prosecute the world wars under the gold standard. Simply couldn't possibly do it. it. It didn't have the quote unquote money. So it had to go to a fiat currency system. And although some efforts were made to go back to the gold standard system, they were not successful. And then the Bretton Woods Accord was a, an attempt to go back to a kind of gold exchange system whereby we had fiat currencies, but one fiat currency, the, the reserve currency, the American dollar was effectively backed by gold in the sense that America would exchange their dollars for gold at a set price to any, any country that wanted its, 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 its dollars, wanted to convert its dollars into gold. And that worked like, for a while, but then with the Vietnam War, America was was spending a great deal of money 
and certain countries led by France were concerned, and they started. Uh, Alexander, sorry, you're, you're uh, yeah, there we go. You were just on your mic, so it started to muffle a bit. And, go ahead. And, and, and certain countries led by France were concerned about their dollars, and they started exchanging their dollars for gold, and America's gold supply in a matter of very short length of time went from over 20,000 tons of gold to 8,000 tons of gold, whereupon you had a run on the bank, whereupon President Nixon, and it's always interesting these things happen under Republicans. People are always saying how the Republicans are the party of, uh, you know, of, 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 uh, of good economy, but all of these happen under Republicans. Anyway, President Nixon, for better or for worse, closed the gold window and America stopped accepting, uh, exchanging uh, dollars for, for their gold. And after that time, we've been on a universal fiat system, which is what we are under now. But, you know, all of this is, didn't happen overnight. All of this is evolutionary like everything else. And uh, you, first, you first started with central banks being basically guarantor banks in case you had a run on commercial banks, the, the central bank would backstop it. But now effectively, uh, central banks are economic central planners. And I would say they've done a very bad job and, and there should be a complete change in the system. So I wanna explore the alternatives and I know that uh, uh, Safed, I think I'm gonna butcher this name, but it's uh, Saifedian, Saifedian Amos, um, an Austrian economist and author of the Bitcoin standard uh, and the fiat standard um, argues that Bitcoin is the hardest money possible. And by hardest, he means uh, the best systematically based on what we want money to be. So can you explain to us what, what is fiat um, and what would the ideal alternative to fiat be? Fiat is basically currency issued uh, or is, is, is legal tender issued by, by uh, a government through their central bank. So therefore, you have as legal tender in America, you have US dollar bills, you have euros in Euroland, you have pound sterling in England, and so forth. And uh, as I say, in a free market, in a genuinely free market, anyone should be allowed to issue a currency if they want to, if it's accepted. I mean, if you want to really have a free market, that's what it would entail. So you would have competition among a currencies. You wouldn't be tied to it. I mean, you wouldn't need to have even a debate about Bitcoin and gold. People would issue gold as a currency. People would issue Bitcoin as currency and you'd see who the public likes, who the public votes for. So wouldn't it be, okay, so let's just go through some of the characteristics of Bitcoin to illustrate the point here as an alternative. Um, Bitcoin basically does what gold would have done, but better. Um, 
in the sense that it's a medium of exchange, it's a store of value, uh, it can be sent to anyone much more quickly and much more cheaply than gold. Um, there is a finite known amount of it, not like gold in which if you're mining it, we don't really know exactly how much there is. There are some rates about how much of it we can extract from the earth on a regular basis, but we don't really know uh, that it's finite. And so it's uh, Bitcoin is inherently deflationary, meaning the more we uh, mine Bitcoin, eventually we know at, I think it's 21 uh, million Bitcoin, there will be no more Bitcoin. And therefore, you will only be trading in the fractions of the existing Bitcoin that has been mined, and that will forever be the total amount. Um, and so we won't have these infl in inflation uh inflationary risks that we've seen. Now, at the same time, uh, stealing on the other side, we saw the massive problems that arose during COVID because a massive amount of the population, global population, found itself out of a job, unable to take care of themselves, um, or losing an, an inordinate amount of money. Um, and the role that the central bank played, at least in the U.S., was, well, we can solve this problem by printing money and giving it to people, and we'll push the can down the road because this will cause inflation, but at least people will be able to buy whatever they need to you know, meet their physiological needs. So in a system where we have an extremely hard money, that's not an option uh, because you can't just devalue your currency. In fact, it's, it's going to be... <laughs> more and more valuable in those times. And so it's probably going to get harder and harder to get your hands on it. Um, and so what are the advantages of having, you know, a static form or store of wealth uh, like Bitcoin compared to a flexible or elastic form like fiat that is controlled by the government? Um, and yeah, can we weigh the pros and cons in terms of what has a, you know, do they hold, are they mutually exclusive? Do they both have a place in a globalized world? What would be the ideal monetary system for us? Well, as I say, I would like to see a system where everyone competes and we'll see who takes what. Let's go for a second to Bitcoin. Uh, would, you, would you borrow a Bitcoins? Would you ever borrow Bitcoins? Yeah, so I think that until Bitcoin reaches a level of mass or hits a point of critical mass in which the volatility is minimized to a negligible extent, I would not want to borrow Bitcoin. No, of course not. And yeah. that's why it, just on that alone, Bitcoin couldn't possibly act as a currency. There's nobody, there's nobody in his right mind would borrow in Bitcoin now. Right. So yeah. therefore, it's, it's and I mean, I, I don't pretend to know a great deal about it, but I know enough to know that that, that that alone would disqualify Bitcoin at the current time as a, as a, as a, a currency. Now, the whole point of fiat currency is, is that they dampen the, the business cycle. In other words, that you, in other words, that you have a, a less of an up and down, a less of a volatile economic system. 
but you've already seen historically, you don't need me to tell you that that's worked just the other way around. I mean, in, in, in the days of the gold standard, you could put away a certain sum of money today for your grandson's education. Well, you couldn't possibly do that now. I mean, I, I mean, just I, 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 I just think your your uh, I just think now, if you were going to put a sum away for what education costs forty years from now, how could you possibly? You wouldn't have any idea what it what it might cost. So, if you're talking about stability. You're talking about inelastic currencies, basically uh, uh, currencies that that have a fixed supply or relatively fixed supply, and are not under the control of politicians. Yeah. So uh, I actually, I, I, sorry, go ahead. Let me just finish. Yep. Historically speaking, every fiat currency that's ever been and. Fiat currencies have been going on for a very, very long time. Uh, paper currencies were used by the Chinese thousands of years ago. Uh, so this is not, fiat currencies are not an, a modern invention. But historically speaking, no fiat, fiat currency has ever stood up the, has ever stood the test of time. They've all blown up. Today, we have a novel form of fiat currencies in the sense that every major currency is a fiat currency that never happened before in the history of the world. That is novel, that's new. And so therefore, on the basis of history, you're guaranteed that the current monetary system is going to blow up at some point. Yeah. I don't, so I think that, you know, the answer would be to have both and to let people switch between them based on their needs. If you want a more stable form of value um, that you can accumulate over the years and know that it will retain its value uh, throughout time, use something that's hard money, uh, Bitcoin or otherwise. And if you want something that uh, is elastic, because for whatever reason you prefer that, um, you can do that too, right? If the government can, the, the advantage of the government being able to create money out of thin air is that it can temporarily devalue its currency in order to take care of people who need currency when they can't give it to them by acquiring it in other ways, right? So you can't, a government can't uh, seize more, I mean, it can, I guess, but it would be much more difficult to seize gold um, and use that as the store of value and maybe even, you know, tie well, it back to- It doesn't uh, need to, it does, uh, governments are seizing money constantly on the form of taxation. Right. There's no problem about a, a government seizing money. It just puts it in a taxation. Now, at some point, if the taxation gets too high, the citizens revolt. That's what we're talking about. Right. Exactly. And same so, with the inflation. If it gets too exactly. high, exactly. So, leave. so, 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 uh, and governments have been in, inflating since time immemorial. In, in the, the time of, of precious metals, 
they would shave the edges of the coin. And so that uh, this, there's nothing new about any of this. It's been going on. It's been going on ad infinitum. In fact, you can time the, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire from when they started shaving coins. <laughs> it's, it, it's, this is why history is so important. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I think um, we, we should point out that many of the major powers in the world, Russia, China, others, have been consistently accumulating more and more gold uh, for the past, I think, 20, 40 plus years. Um, why are they doing that? Well, let's just start of what is different about gold than any other form of currency. And it's a very simple fact. Gold has a history of at least 5,000 years. <laughs> There's nothing that even comes close. And even if, 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 even if Bitcoin were the most perfect money and much more perfect than gold, it needs to prove that for 5,000 years before it can absolutely Replace have, have that title without any contention. So yeah. that's what gives gold, that's what gives gold its, its gold and silver their, their cachet. But as I say, I'm in favor of all kinds of currencies. Let's just see what the public wants and what the public accepts. The public have voted over the past 5,000 years that they think gold is the best currency. Now, maybe they change. Yeah, and, and that brings no us right back to you know having that education to understand what forms of money are, first of all, what is money to begin with? And why does it exist? And what properties should it have? And what forms we have used most effectively in the past? Why have they changed? Um, and then what have they changed to? What are the consequences of those changes in order to even just make an opinion about what we should do? So that's a that's a very uh, important one. And you know, I want to dive into the potential threats of a changing world order or a change in the monetary system before we go into these macro existential uh, potential threats for humanity. Um, but what would happen if China became the dominant world power given its existing political stance? Well, I, I would argue and say that, that China has had a long history of being probably by far the longest history of any country being a world power because China was a world power thousands of years ago. I mean, in the 18th century, in the 18th century, 50% of the world's entire commerce was with China. But the interesting thing is that China has been a world power, but has never been the preeminent world power in all this time. You've never had a You've never had a Pax China. You've had a, you've, uh, you've had the Pax Romanus, the Roman Pax. You've had the British Empire ruling the world. You've had the American Empire ruling the world now. But you've never had the Chinese have never ruled the world. And I think the answer to that is very complex. And, w and weren't they something to it? 
were they not leading in ancient uh, China with the dynasties? Uh, 5000 BC, I believe, or something, or yeah, from there on until. Well, I mean, they never, uh, they never invaded Europe. Right. It was two different major they empires, never, for sure. They, uh, they never invaded the Middle East. So, uh, now, I, I, I think the reasons for that are highly complex, and I don't pretend to, to even begin to know them, but it's something, it's something to be considered. So China has never been the world power and ruling the world the way the Brits did, the way America does now, the way Rome did in its day. That's never happened. Now, maybe it would happen now, but I mean, you know, there are all sorts of, first of all, they have a demographic problem. Their, their, their population is now shrinking. Uh, I really, I really don't see, personally, I don't see, I see the Chinese as being always very powerful and, and very important, but I never see the Chinese as ruling the world. Interesting. So is there some kind of cultural difference there? I know that you know, from an Eastern to Western philosophy, there's more of an individualism in the West and a collectivism in the East. Uh, but would China not, why would China stop expanding, right? If they go after Taiwan, where does the line? Well, first of end? all, the, the Chinese are under a political system which historically is constantly has constantly imploded. Communism has never shown itself to be a system of a government that works for any length of time. That's that's even efficient at all. It's, it's even economically efficient. Viable. I mean, they uh, they practically starved their country to death. It was only when they removed the shackles of communism and allowed free enterprise to work a little bit that they suddenly economically took off after that. Before that, they were so backward and so poor that they weren't even under consideration as a power. Ever since they became, uh, uh, their, their greatness has, was pre-being pre communist. So as communists, they've never really even been barely a world power. And it was only when they became quasi a communist. Now they're back to being communist. I, I, I honestly, I mean, just look at how they handled a COVID. I mean, I would give them, I, I don't think that COVID was handled too, too well by any countries in, in, in the world, except maybe for Sweden, but certainly China has to be the, the worst handling of COVID that, that I've ever seen. Would you really think that these people could rule the, the world? These people are crazy. They're absolute lunatics, these people. So the thing is, you know, I, and I think that's where the <laughs> danger lies. Uh, there is this kind of quasi-communism that exists now where you can adapt the practical and economically powerful attributes of capitalism, but maintain the oppressive and controlling uh, sides politically of communism. And so, I don't think so. I don't think so. You've seen already what's happened. As soon as they let they let the air of freedom come through, they suddenly became terrified. They were losing control. 
They're constantly afraid of losing control. They can't even rule China, let alone rule the world. No, no, mm. no, no. Mm. That's, a, that's an interesting point. Um, okay, so that's if uh, China becomes the next world power. But we also have some much bigger threats on the horizon. And one of them is environmentalism. Why do we have such a poor environmentalism? Uh, why is our planet at risk? And what can we do about it? Well, this is a very important subject and highly complex. And I'm certainly not in a position to give any real answers. But I would like to make the following points, which are we have a lot of people on the planet. We've had an explosion of people because we've become very, very rich. And so we've lifted a huge amount of people out of poverty. People are eating. Look, at least up until now, I, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but up to now, suddenly starvation has been replaced by obesity. The problem in the Western world is not starvation. The problem in the Western world I see is lots of very fat people. So we are, and, and although our birth rates are down in, in some of the Western world, we still have a huge number of people on the planet. And these people litter. We are humans. We are, uh, and, and, and we have industrial areas which are more poisonous and so forth and so on. And a lot of our technology and modernization has a, has a unfortunate uh, toxic aspect uh, to it. In order to feed all these people, we do industrialized farming. Industrialized farming is very harmful to the soil. It's ecologically not, not the best idea. There are all, all, kinds of, all kinds of problems here. And obviously this is something that we're going to have to deal with and try to deal with it as intelligently and pragmatically as we can. I would say one thing though, and this is something that really, I think that politicians need to keep in mind and, and, and none of them think of it in these terms. Basically, life is energy in, energy out. In other words, you need to get enough energy to stay alive and to expend the energy to get more energy and so forth and, and, and so on. So therefore, policies have to be based on pragmatism. They can't be based on anything else other than the end survival is based on pragmatism. It has to pay for itself. If what I'm doing, if my activity is not bringing in the necessary energy fuel that I need to survive, I, I can't afford to do it. I, I, I don't care ideologically how wonderful it is. I just cannot afford it. Hmm. And some and people and the politicians particularly should use pragmatic formulas in judging what they are doing, but but they don't. And particularly under with a fiat system, they think they can afford everything and anything. And there's no there's we are leaving common sense behind, and leaving common sense behind is endangering our our survival. And I leave it at that. So a couple of things I I want to bring up. Um for this conversation. Uh, well, first I wanna bring up the work of uh, Matt Ridley who wrote The Rational Optimist, 
which essentially gives a brief history of how things have gotten better over time, or we've had progress measured by some of the metrics that he's mentioned, um, violence. Right. But the thing is, um, this progress is subjective based on the metrics that we track. And so what are the objective metrics that we should be tracking, uh, not only for environmentalism, but for having a better society? I said, and I say it again, you need to do pragmatism unless a policy is collectively uh, pays for itself in the sense that it is affordable and improves the general lot of people, it is it 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 must not be followed. Simply it simply is doesn't matter how how wonderful it is. You just can't do it. If if you're going to survive. You don't care about surviving, that's something else. So can we use Maslow's hierarchy just because it's a widely known hierarchy of needs to derive metrics that we want to prioritize for society. Um, so for example, for physiological needs, water, shelter, food, um, nutrition rates um, or malnutrition rates or access to water, uh, clean water, right? Um, access to appropriate housing, uh, these kinds of things. Uh, safety needs, right? Mental health uh, metrics. And these are where things get more complicated, but say there were a unanimous or at least effective metric for happiness. Um, and that could be measured by, you know, the lack of the things that aren't good for mental health. So the lack of depression, the lack of anxiety, the lack of um, any kind of, of poor mental health. Um, and then as we go up, right, things like um, uh, self-esteem, right? So um, self-respect, uh, these are very tough things to measure, right? We have to basically create quantitative measures for qualitative things. And then ultimately self-actualization, which um, are things like self-transcendence, you know, actualizing your goals, reaching your goals, setting ambitious things, uh, helping other people, those kinds of things. So um, it, it seems possible to come up with metrics that would, that would meet each of these rungs of needs. Um, but the issue that I see is one, how do we hold the people in power accountable to actually improve those metrics? And two, um, how do we decide on which metrics to track uh, for everyone to agree um, and it's not necessarily a need to agree on every single metric, but agree on, you know, we should care about this because it's an existential threat for us in the environmental case, or because we have massive rates of school shootings more and more in the U.S. due to this mental health crisis. Um, so, yeah, how do we answer those questions? Well, I go back to what I've just said. Those are highly complex questions. But the first and most obvious a metric for any a policy and any civilization and any group of people is are they able are they able to to survive? And as I say, 
unless you're unless you're following the very uh, the, the very basic laws of thermodynamics, which we have and which are simple to to see if we're doing it. If you if you can't follow them, if 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 you can't if you cannot if your policy is not is is not a policy of survival, then it's in my opinion, it's not discussionable. I agree. We need the base. We need the base first. Um, one thing I want to bring up towards that, and then we'll conclude on a final point about another existential threat, um, is the point of making aligned incentives and win-win situations, something that Stephen R. Covey talks about in one of the most popular self-help business books, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. How do we create aligned incentives or win-win scenarios for these metrics and say survival is is the uh, is the metric that we're targeting here. What are some ways we could go about making maximizing survival a win-win for the for the globe? Well, there are you know a, a mathematical ways of of doing an analysis. I mean, doing cost analysis is something that every business does. And and so the, the the ones I'm talking about are fairly are fairly obvious and, and fairly and fairly straightforward uh, to make the sort of metrics that you and I would like. Uh, some of them are quite esoteric, as you point out, and would be almost impossible to make. I mean, happiness. This is this is an area that's I think at this point, as far as I know, is beyond us. But at least let's let's talk in terms of survival, which is something that we can fairly reasonably have have a certainly a better idea. I mean, it's not it's not being done at all, so it would be it would, would be easy to sort of put that forward. And you have a lot of very very bright people who could easily do that, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. So. Having gone through many of these existential threats, the last one is if we self-destruct, right? And that could happen in any myriad of ways, whether it's a nuclear war in mass or a planetary disaster through a meteorite or climate change that's irreversible, causing all kinds of natural disasters, where the human race could no longer exist on Earth. Uh, and one of the people that is working towards the solution to that is Elon Musk through SpaceX, trying to make us a multi-planetary species by uh, terraforming and living on Mars. So one of the things that um, I wanted to, to bring up here is what are all the possible scenarios in which, and, and also to just talk about you know, why this is important or whether it should be important. Um, to focus on because one of the main critiques of this line of thinking is we have enough problems here on earth we should focus on solving these problems not be focusing on leaving it um and just to conclude right we can terraform and live on mars we can terraform and live on the moon we can create international space stations that people could live on forever there's multiple ways that we can leave the planet and still survive um and the reason or the line of thinking for that side is if for whatever reason something does happen to Earth, uh, we have 
survived in other ways. Um, so that's a long ways away, but what do we say, or what do you think about whether we should be pouring any resources or time and attention towards that, as opposed to solving the problems here? And not that they're mutually exclusive. No, I, I, I think that we need to do both, but space travel is clearly part of the future. I think there's no question about it. To what extent it's gonna take place with what speed and acceleration, these are imponderables. I must say that in spite of all the many problems in the world has gone from one problem to another, uh, there are two things which give me always tremendous optimism about humanity because I think I think that humans have two of the, the greatest and most important qualities in the world, and that is adaptability and innovation. And that is what has saved man endlessly, and which I hope for the future of the species will, will continue to save man in spite of all the obvious problems and dangers that face us. At the risk of uh, ending on a less positive note, I think that would be an amazing, amazing place to wrap up. But I do want to ask you before we wrap up, is there anything I have not asked you? What have I not asked you uh, that we should cover before closing out? I, I, think, I, think, I think that you've done an incredible job of pulling everything together and touching on all the bases that, that I'm aware of. All right. Thank you so much, Alexandros. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. A great uh, pleasure, Adrian. Thank you so much. Very fascinating conversation. Guys, if you like this episode, please like, comment, subscribe, share, rate the podcast, sign up for our newsletter and Discord, um, get some merch. We hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you in the next one.